Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. Ever since he first bumped into the music of Epirus by discovering a crate of forgotten gramophone records on the top floor of a shop in Istanbul, Christopher King, a Grammy-winning producer or collector, has concentrated his efforts in studying, documenting, and more importantly enjoying the music of Greece's mountainous north. His book, A Lament from Epirus, is a travelogue that also serves as a concise cultural history of the area, a respectful anthropological study of its people, as well as a treatise on the importance of what he calls living music. In the following conversation, we talk about his longer relationship to Epirus, his next steps in preserving its cultural heritage, and his views on the ongoing battle between authenticity and modernity still seeking a resolution. This is episode one of The Archipelago, a weekly show on movement.radio. I am Jan Sorespoa Dimitriou. Sound editing is by Stefan Kostadinidis. Christopher King, welcome to the Archipelago. Hi, Giannis. Thanks for having me. So you've done, uh, you have associated your name in the last few years with the music of Epirus. You've done some extensive work. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit about that? Uh, what have you done? What uh, has attracted you to the music of Epirus? Well, I'll tell you the story, and in that way it'll capture what happened. So about 10 years ago, I took a family vacation to Istanbul, to Constantinople. And there I found a small stack of 78 RPM discs. See, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of an obsessive collector, uh, primarily of early music, uh, early folk music from across the United States. I've never really collected anything outside of the United States. And in, uh, in Istanbul, I saw this small stack of discs that had Greek lettering that were played to death. They were wiped out which to a collector is a good sign. That means that the music is quite, is quite interesting. So I bought the stack of records, took them back to Virginia, listened to them, and what was contained on these discs was mainly music from Epirus, both southern Albania as well as northern Greece. And when I heard that music, it grabbed me by the throat, and it didn't let me go. And so I became obsessed with understanding 
not only the history and the culture of the music, but also what this music was intended to do. So over the course of the last 10 years, I've assembled uh, eight collections, uh, both CD and LP, of music from Iparos, both music from the 1920s to the 1950s, as well as contemporary field recordings that I made. And then uh, about five years ago, um, I was approached by the U.S. publisher, W.W. Norton in New York, to write a book about the music of Iparos. And that was uh, Lament from Iparos, which was um, published about two years ago here in the U.S. And then shortly thereafter, a translation was made by Doma Publications in Athens. And over the last two years, I've been in Greece now on average six to seven times a year. Uh, I spend more time in Greece than I do in the U.S. until I had to come back at the end of November of last year. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have uh, you have actually done some work on uh, on music from all over Greece. There are some collections that you have uh, curated uh, on music from uh, Crete. You can find music from the from the islands uh, or from mainland Greece and other places. But you still seem to be particularly enamored by uh, by the music from Epirus. What is so particular about it? What what was it that you liked? What is different than the rest of music from Greece? Mm, that's a good question, Giannis. I mean. I, I would admit that, yes, the music of Iparos is my first love, but I almost have an adulterous relationship with other music from around Greece. You know, the music from the Cyclades, music from Peloponnese, from Thrace, from Macedonia. Uh, the thing that I, the thing that really draws me to the music of Iparos is how heavy it is, particularly the Zagorian music. It's, it's not light listening. Um, and even though the lyrics are not profoundly poetic, uh, they, they, they themselves have weight to them. They're, they have gravity. And I like that. I like that deep, dark seriousness that you hear in the music there. It reminds me of the mountain. <laughs> uh, you think this is the uh, this is the ore of the mountains? I mean, your book is actually uh, most of it is about the history and the landscape and the, uh, even the animals that you'll find in in Ibirus. Do you think that you can hear these things inside the music? Oh yes. No, I, I, I'm a firm believer that music mimics nature. I mean, where we happen to be in the world shapes how we make music, and that's the same in the United States when you go down to Southwest Louisiana. Uh, the music there sounds like the landscape. When you're in the southern Appalachians, listen to fiddle music. It's the same thing. The music, the music in this area mimics the landscape that surrounds us. And so, certainly, the vastness of the mountain ranges in Iparos and the nature, the, the the brooks, the fish, the dogs, everything it contributes to the music. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you mentioned this because the, uh, you have actually created some uh, shows for uh, Movement Radio that we hear over the coming days that uh, combine some music that you heard in the, mostly in the US, if, if I'm not mistaken, with uh, some genres uh, from around Greece. Could you tell us a bit about that? What's the similarity between these genres that you have combined? Well, I mean, what I've done for Movement Radio... Uh, for Onassis, for this Onassis project, is I've taken 78 RPM recordings from all over Greece that are in my collection. I have a very large collection of, of demotic music. And I've combined them with music from my collection on 78 RPM from across the United States, as well as other parts of the world, Ukraine, Poland, etc. Um, because 
I, I hear these similarities across music, across uh, thematic music and regional music. I mean, for instance, Cretan music has a sort of urgency and frantic character to it that reminds me very much of breakdowns, of fiddle breakdowns from Texas and Mississippi. Uh, and then the sort of forceful abstractness that you hear in Peloponnese music on played on Zorna and Pipiza uh, reminds me also of these kind of hard-driving fiddle-led groups that you hear throughout the southern United States, and on and on. I mean, I, I guess if there's one principle that you can hear that's threaded throughout those programs that will be played by movement is this. Um, I, I, I believe that there are archetypes in music just in the same way that um, Joseph uh, Campbell, who was kind of a disciple of Carl Jung, uh, believed in archetypes that are found in mythology. You know, he wrote this book called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. The, the, where he the draws theory that it's only, there's only one story in structure, right? If I'm not mistaken. Right, there's only one story, there's only one story with endless variations and you find it seeded throughout the world. And so I find these archetypes in music. Uh, there, there are these similarities that are found across cultures Um, because ultimately we're all human beings react to their existential situation in basically the same in basically the same way. And music happens to be one of the most tangible manifestations of that way. Mm-hmm. You, you actually mentioned that you were interested in what the music earlier that you were interested in, uh, what the music of Epirus does. Uh, and I think by that you mean, if I'm interpreting it correctly, that Uh, it actually it's associated with the culture, with building character in people, with uh, tradition, with uh, everything like this. So, do you find the similarities, for example, between uh, Pontian music and uh, Appalachian? I, I think that's one of the the compilations that you made: Pontian music and Appalachian music, right? Uh, do you, yes. Do you think there's similarities in the cultures also? Do you think that people who made this music are kind of similar? Well, I mean, th- they're similar in the sense that the Pontic Greeks are from a diaspora. You know, they, they, they originally were living around the Black Sea region, and then they were expelled. Um, people in Appalachia moved there. You know, the, the original, the aboriginals of Appalachia were Indians, American Indians, uh, who, settled, who settled in the Appalachians happened to be Scotch and Irish uh, uh, poor farmers who left... Uh, who left uh, Europe, who left England, who left their islands to come to America for, um, I guess, opportunity for a new start. And the, the big similarity between the Pontics and the, and the Americans that settled throughout Appalachia was that life was very hard. Life was very hard when you were transplanted, when you were forced out of where you were. And so people reacted that way through music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, you have said in uh, one of your interviews that uh, uh, good music stopped coming out in the 30s, in the late 30s. Uh, wh- why do you say that? What happened in the late 30s? Well, it, it, it's complicated, but, but, but essentially what happened was, starting at the turn of the last century in the United States, the most beautiful music in the entire world was being recorded. 
as soon as it was being recorded, as soon as it was being recorded, people became self-aware. They, they, they became reflective of their own voices and the way they sounded on disc. Um, and so they kind of changed their sound gradually because they wanted the sound more acceptable based on the record. It's the self-consciousness that I, that I imagine is associated with vanity. You know how when you start looking in a mirror, you become concerned with the way that you look. However, if you did not have a mirror, you would not be concerned with the way you look. The, the, the phonograph record is a mirror. And so gradually over the course of, say, 20 to 30 years, this constant reflecting in a mirror, looking at the way that they were making music, caused music to change. And in my opinion, to degenerate, to become poorer and poorer and poorer until the commercial import of music uh, overshadowed uh, its humanitarian aspect, its 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 uh, ethos, its its emotional uh, content. It just degraded. And you and think so? This, oh, sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> and, and so, basically, by the end of the 1930s, music had become a business. It was a commercial venture. It was something that was intended to make money. People slicked up their sounds so that they would sell more and more records. They were expressing themselves less and less, and they were expressing the need to make money more and more. And so essentially by, by, by the close of the 78 RPM era, uh, authentic American folk music was more or less dead except for those people that weren't recording it. You know, uh, poor farmers who played music for their own enjoyment, people in southwest Louisiana that played for their own enjoyment. Uh, the phonograph industry essentially killed the thing that it started capturing. Uh, so uh, there is, you have, uh, you mentioned your book, the term living music, and I think that kind of relates to what we're discussing now. Uh, what is living music? I think it might, it sounds like the contrast of what you're describing. Yes, I mean, I that. mean, Right. Living music is music that exists for a purpose. Uh, it's not preserved by a museum nor by uh, European mandates such as UNESCO, uh, nor by special clubs or organizations. Um, it's, it's actually sustained by the people that need it. Uh, music exists to address needs. And so those people that participate in that music, either dancing to it, Uh, providing the, the the food and the drink, or actually making the music, they work in a uh, a symbiotic relationship to sustain the music, and it's an unconscious effort. People, I don't think, actually go around making their music living um, by the very fact that they need it. It does live.
yeah, but also the, one might argue that uh, modern music, in a sense, I mean, post, post-recorded music, essentially, um, where, you know, as you said, that you have the idea that you're recording and you're building your, uh, your music around this, also has some community ceremonies, not... What, what is different in this community? Like, for example, the rave community, for example. How is it different from a community in Epirus? Well, for one thing, I don't think the rave community provides uh, free lamb or free boar <laughs> or free tipper or free wine. Uh, secondly, they're not tied to any type of long-term legacy. I mean, you know, the rave cultures don't don't go back thousands of years or hundreds of years. Um, and, and, and thirdly, um, I think that the I think that the development of, of say music in Ipiros versus the development of music in a rave community, it does have a much more organic quality to it. I mean, it, it's sourced from various things that have been longstanding among members. Whereas with the rave community, you have to be a member of that community to engage in it. You know, you have to agree to take ecstasy, and you have to agree to wear a certain kind of neon outfit and paint your lips so they glow in the dark. That doesn't really, I think, exist so much uh, within the within the areas of Epirus as well as rural Greece. Like, I, I think that there they are much more welcoming to outsiders, at least to me. Yeah, but you, you said uh, you said before that. Uh Uh, it uh, the the original music the original folk music that you're focused on is the one that wasn't uh, archived in a sense that wasn't that didn't make it into national galleries and or uh, uh, all, all that uh, what do you think is the right way to preserve this music well that that also is a very good question Yanis, because that involves uh, active preservation which can be a double-edged sword. Uh, it can do just as much damage as it can good. Um, I, I kind of feel the best way to preserve music is to instill sort of a self-aware awareness in the terms of pride of that music. So, for instance, um, you know, music in Epirus has been going on for hundreds of years in the particular format that it's in, at least since the 1830s with clarinet, violin, defi, lauto, etc. Uh, but people are largely unaware of its longevity, nor of its beauty. It just happens to be something that occurs once a year during Panayiria. It happens to be something that is played for glindia or for weddings or baptisms. But it's kind of just it's kind of something that you you don't really notice how central it is because you're part of the pattern. You're part of that culture. But then some crazy American shows up and then starts going throughout Europe and America talking about how beautifully splendid this ancient music is. Well, then they become self-aware. They think to themselves, I haven't really noticed this thing so beautiful going on in my backyard. Uh, perhaps I ought to. And I think that's not a bad way of preserving music because it makes people prideful. It makes them proud of their heritage. And yet they don't wish to change what it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
like you still you have a, you speak in your book actually how uh, the clarinet for example is taught from one master to the other I think that's an important part of what uh, makes this music uh, living as uh, uh, as we say uh, but there's also the the, the panigiri that you mentioned you, you also talk about this in your book that the modern version of it is electric it's amplified it's uh, it's still part of the tradition it's still there in the, on an annual basis and uh, But it's a mimicry of something that existed, a very, uh, in a very twisted sense, let's say. Uh, why do people pres- preserve this thing that's kind of between their tradition and modernity, this interim uh, version of the Panigiri? Yeah, I mean, I admit, Giannis, that's problematic. I mean, for myself, I detest, I detest amplified Panigiri. To me, they're unnecessary. But when you talk about at least a few specific events where you have not uh, a couple hundred villagers but a couple thousand uh, if it's not amplified no one will hear it I, un- I understand that argument um, I-, I think that I think that changes like amplification for instance or electrification of instruments I think it's a process that if people listen to it and it doesn't affect them the way that they, it w- they want to be affected, then it may actually relapse into an earlier form. And I'll, and I'll give you a good example. I mean, I was at a Paniyiri uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, and one of the, one of the gypsy musicians showed up with a guitar, uh, an acoustic guitar, but still he showed up with a guitar. And the villagers asked him to leave and to go back and get his lauto. <laughs> I remember this from Because, the book. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah, because that that was that was the way that that's the way that their village had actually uh, celebrated Panieri. It worked for them in that particular way. So I can see over the course of time, maybe villages will embrace amplification, but then reject it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. As an archivist, what's your interest in uh, preserving this music? How are you going to do it? How are you thinking of doing it? You've already started making uh, a few compilations of this music, but what's next? Well, I mean, the the, the collections that I've done now over. Now I've done over 12 collections of Greek music uh, in total. Uh, and the book, that's like a, that's a step towards preserving and disseminating the importance of the music. But the next step is ultimately for me to move to Greece with my collection and to create a center for the collection and preservation of Greek folk music. Uh, because much to my surprise, no such thing exists In, in a country in a country where it's quite small, Greece is a small country. You can fit Greece, what, four times in the state of Texas. <laughs> for, a, for a country that is extremely small, it has the most diverse biosphere of folk music in all of Europe, quite possibly in all the world. And yet, in a, in a country that esteems its folk music and celebrates it through its variety, There is no place in all of Greece that collects that music, that historically archives it, that makes it available for people to study, to listen, to write to, to celebrate. And so my goal is to move there with my collection, to build the collection, and then to very slowly digitize it, disseminate it, and then to make, uh, make sort of a celebration of it by going throughout Europe, making presentations on what Greece has as not only a legacy, but also as a living tradition. Why do you think this has not happened until now? 
Um, I think it's largely because of the, the the earlier the earlier explanation for why people were not aware of how beautiful their panierio was. You don't miss your water until your well runs dry is a old saying here in the U.S. I'm sure there's something like that in Greece. You you know in the United States we have the Library of Congress, we have the uh, American Folklife Center, we probably have over a dozen archival areas that collect uh, either specific folk music of a region or general folk music throughout the United States. One reason why that is, is because that music is dead. You know, it died a, it died a horrible death in the late 1930s. Um, in Greece, it's still alive. And so I think people have a tendency to think, oh, well, why do we need to pres- why do we need to have um, artifacts of our past musical legacy when we have a living legacy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's also this uh, this element in your work that's very much focused on the 78s, the 70, uh, 78 RPMs uh, that you're collecting. This is uh, how is the listening experience from these records different than, let's say, vinyl yes, tape or digital? Oh, it's vastly superior, guys. I mean, you know, when I listen to a 78 played back on my system, when I have everything calculated properly, the musicians are in the room with you. Uh, there's a transparency and a lightness to everything so that it perfectly conveys. Uh, in, in my judgment, LPs, uh, they don't have the dynamic. They don't have the dynamic range that a 78 RPM does. Uh, magnetic tapes are just simply flat. They're lifeless. Um, s- digital recording comes close. It does come close. Uh, but there's something about hearing music that's 100 years old uh, that is qualitatively superior to that of digitally capturing music live.
do you think there's a, I was listening to this uh, version by uh, of a well-known song Menusis I'm get, you you mentioned it I think also at some point uh, this well-known uh, murder ballad from Hippirus uh, uh, I was li- listening to the version by Dimitris Arapakis uh, I don't know if you know him the a famous rebetico player and So yeah, as I was listening to it, I could actually picture the the gramophone in front of me. Although this has never happened, I mean, I have never seen a gramophone play in my life, you know. Uh, <laughs> so I'm thinking, is there a danger that by going into this music, we might be becoming a little bit ontological? Let's say that we are actually uh, trapping ourselves, maybe in invented memories that we never lived. That is always a danger. That is always a danger. I mean, one reason why I think I fell so hard in my love for the music of Iparos was that it reminded me of the musical experiences that I no longer can have in the U.S. You know, by the time I was a young boy, that music was on its was on crutches. You know, heading towards the, heading towards the morgue. Uh, I missed out on that experience of hearing real live folk music. And so, in a way, hearing the music in, in Iparos live was this recreation in my own mind of what I what I missed in my youth in America. But, and I understand the danger in that. But I think that actually most musicians, because it's actually musicians that make the music, not not the archivists. You know, uh, most musicians don't really care what an archivist or a scholar thinks. They play music the way they play their music. So I think by preserving and then disseminating, sharing this music, it gives the artist an opportunity to at least hear the tradition from which they come. And maybe they can say to themselves, oh, I really, really like the way Zumbas played that little part. I think I'm going to try to put that in my, my next performance. But then that artist has the same ability to say, I really don't like the way that Zumbas played this other part. I'm going to reject that. It's funny because that you mentioned the the thing that you didn't get to hear folk music in your life in your young age, uh, because I want to ask about this part of your book where you mention the the Sunday feasts after church. I think it's in Virginia. Uh, yes, uh, where you said that uh, there used to be a thing that after church people would gather in a, in a yard, maybe from what I got, uh, playing music. Yeah. Uh, And then that this this uh, as years progressed, this wasn't a thing anymore. And I want to know. How was it taken away? How did it stop being a thing? Uh, and it, once again, Giannis, it's multiple reasons. I mean, at, at these church picnics, it would be my grandfather playing fiddle or banjo and other people that were part of the congregation playing, say, guitar or singing or whatever. But the thing was, my grandfather, when he was doing that, was in his 80s. And there was nobody like his sons, my father and, and his other son, Uh, although my father played music, my father did not play folk music. He played classical piano. There was no there was no such thing as a traditional passing down from one generation to the next in the same way that it had been going on for hundreds of years in the U.S. And that's mainly because of the advance of modernity. I mean, you know, my mo- my father felt like he could make more money playing classical piano than he could playing the banjo. Uh, and also, you know, uh, over time. Uh, uh, live music was replaced by canned music, you know, p- people playing a cassette tape. Uh, and just in general, just the way in which uh, America has always striven to be a very commercially centric 
country. Uh, quaint things such as just playing banjo and fiddle for a church picnic, uh, it didn't have a commercial appeal to it. But you know, you, you talk about how the music works in these communities, what does that, it kind of heals them, it brings them together, it is associated with major events and uh, everything. And we know, on the other hand, that modernity has always been accused of being alienating and, uh, and all that. But the main question is this, why do communities that need this music for their existence, for their life, to heal their wounds or to, to come together, give up to modernity at some point, in your opinion? Mm. Well, once again, that's a good question. I think it has, a, I think, in, I mean, I'll answer that question as it pertains to Greece, because I think that that's the most pertinent thing. Uh, I mean, I think in northern Greece, especially as the villages become depopulated, people moving to Athens or people moving to Europe or America, I think that that depopulation really puts a huge amount of stress on the musical economy. Because um, there has to be enough people at a Panayiri to dance in order to support the function of the thing. You know, there has to be enough people to, say, make the food or make the tsipro. And certainly there has to be musicians available to make the music. And in certain areas of Greece, that's far more um, robust. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I went to a, a, a beautiful, beautiful, great Panayiri. Um, outside of Mesolone, uh, where it was a group of, I'm going to say something like 30 Pipiza players and uh, various groups of people that were from that region. They formed little companies, companies that were like 10 or 20 men at a table. And then they would hire the Pipiza players and the drummer to play for their little mini Panayiri inside of the larger Panayiri. <laughs> and... Of course, money was being thrown around. In fact, this was the most bizarre-ass thing I think I've ever seen in my life. They weren't throwing money around that were, uh, that were euros. They were throwing out U.S. dollars. <laughs> they were throwing out U.S. dollars. That, that was the economy. The economy was based on throwing out U.S. money. And so you know, I witnessed this, and I said to myself, this is the kind of panayiri that is actually going to sustain itself into the future because it provides everything for everybody. It provides money for the musicians. There's food being provided for the company. The company themselves are having a great time, and then they invite you in as a guest to participate in their little mini panayiri. I could not see anything wrong with that panayiri. <laughs> Again, so do you think that Epirus is still under threat of, uh, by modernization? Uh, or maybe because there's a, so you mentioned at some point that someone told you that globalization isn't for us in Epirus. <laughs> Do you think that's resilient against modernity or that can uh, survive? Well, uh, I'd like to be optimistic and think that if people steadfastly preserve their traditions because certain things are not for them, such as globalization, that those traditions will sustain themselves. Uh, the, the pessimistic side of myself um, thinks that there needs to be deeper social mechanisms at play, uh, social and governmental mechanisms at play that will help support these beautiful traditions. And I, and, I mean, like a, a really good example is um, not to have commerce uh, focused so solely on urban areas. And so, so and rather than having 
um, sort of the brain of Greece being located in Athens and in Thessaloniki, uh, there needs to be sort of an even distribution of wealth centers in Greece to sort of like bring bring some sort of incentive for people to either stay in the villages or to move back to the villages so that they can sustain this beautiful cultural economy that's been going on for hundreds of years. Do you think that it's, we're also seeing this tendency that, uh, you know, there are laws on smoking, there are laws, major taxes on cheaper nowadays, you know, things that are kind of uh, bringing the, all the, the, the elements uh, of this thing, you know, a, a lot of uh, difficult processes for licensing to, to do a thing like that. Uh, do you think that maybe that the, the panigir is associated with the hedonism that is kind of under attack in a sense? In the last decades, I, I don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I would say consequently, yes, you're correct. But I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if there's some sort of conspiracy <laughs> to do away with the hedonism or the paganism or the the exuberance of panigiria uh, as it's tied to say tipero consumption or uh, kokorizzi. Uh, rather, I would just think that it's it's kind of like short sightedness on the part of governmental officials, you know, thinking that they can, quote unquote, save the economy by taxing the hell out of locally made liquor. Um, that was tried in the U.S. That was tried in the U.S. and it failed. It, it failed. failed in what way? Uh, well, <laughs> as my father always told me, uh, if only outlaw, if, if, if alcohol is outlawed, only outlaws will make alcohol. <laughs> people are, people are going to make Tipero and get away with it, uh, because they can, uh, it's, it's far, far, far better just to simply regulate it modestly. I want to ask you this last question to, to close our conversation. Uh, there you have, we have spoken about music uh, that is about healing in Epirus. We have also we have not mentioned that, but you have spoken extensively about uh, what uh, what the role of death, the concept of death, facing death, uh, what it plays in uh, the culture of Epirus. And I want to ask, you know, healing and death. Uh, how do you think that Epirus now is going uh, contemplates the whole COVID nineteen situation? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why you want to end the interview on death. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I talk to many of my friends almost weekly from Ypres about, say, COVID. And yes, of course, there are concerns, uh, as there should be. But I think, I think, um, I think Greeks in that area have a, a very balanced idea of fatalism. Uh, of fatalism, accepting their fate, uh, as well as this sort of conscious valuation of life. You know, one one thing that I've learned over the last 10 years of being in Greece is that I don't think that there's a country that's more embracing of the concept of how good life is, how good life is. And so um, I think that that positive mental outlook, if I can attribute something like that to the people of Ypres, is actually what sustains them. You know, uh, people make jokes about how depressing and and uh, and cold the people of Ypres are. Uh, that's just because they don't know them. Okay, that's it, I think. Uh, Christopher King, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you, Giannis. Thank mm-hmm. you.
following is an excerpt from Christopher King's upcoming shows on Movement Radio. This program, Goat Herding Music, is part of a series that I assembled for the relaunch of Movement Radio. In this series, I play 7-8 RPM discs from my home soil, the rural southern countryside of the United States, along with discs especially from Greece and the southern Balkans. I do this to show how I hear things how I hear the startling similarities and stark differences between folk music separated thousands of miles, yet being so close of kin as to be family. This is how I hear through the medium of the 78 RPM record. The title comes from a conversation I had with artist Robert Crumb, who is also a 78 RPM collector. We had sat listening to bagpiping 78s from around the world, and Robert said that this music must have been intended to induce trance in goat herders, sheep herders. I replied that not only trance in the shepherds, but also in the animals, and that there were other tunes, such as skaros and doina, that were played on flutes and violins also for the inducement of trance in both man and animal. And so for this program, I will play not only tsabuna and gaeda, music from Greece, but also a special shepherd's air known as Doina from Romania. We'll hear 78s from Alexis Zumbas, Big Boy Cleveland, Henry Thomas, Dave Tadas, and Melanian Stack. <laughs> 